0: Amen. Well, Happy New Year to you, whether you're in this room or in the lobby or online. Uh, My name's Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here. And this is one of those Sundays uh, where we're all probably thinking something similar, which is, okay, how is this year going to be different, right? 2020. Whew. (laughs) 2021. (sighs) You know what I mean? That's that's what it's been like, right? (laughs) Other people in in here are making noises based on it, yes. Um, And so guys, here's what I want to talk about as we kind of start. As you think about the new year, I want to tell you something because I think a lot of us, we want a new beginning. And if you're, if you're new here, you don't know this, Jesus is all about new beginnings. When you become a Christian, you get a new heart, you get new desires, you get new affections. Uh, Jesus is preparing for his church a new heavens and a new earth. So Jesus is all about new. But here's what you need to know. Maybe this is why you came and this is all you need and then you can leave. Uh, if you want to have a new beginning, you have to have a necessary ending. That's it. If you want to have a new beginning, you have to first, and this is the more painful thing, you have to have a necessary ending. So let me just ask you, uh, where do you need to stop doing something so you can start doing something, right? Some of you, you know it. You don't have to say it out loud. You, you know, you may, some of you, your spouse knows it, okay? You, it's, a, it's a habit you need to stop. It's a sin you need to repent of. It's a relationship you need to break up with. It's a group of friends you don't need to hang out with anymore. It's a job that is draining you and let me just encourage you by the grace of God to have the necessary endings so you can have the new beginnings. Our residency for a very 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 small group of you who maybe are online watching online or in here, uh, it could be the way to have a new beginning and a new direction in ministry. Here's what our residency is. It's how we invest in the church of tomorrow today. If you don't know this, you live in I live in the greatest decline of Christianity in the history of our nation. So our answer to the decline of Christianity in our nation, among many other things, is to deepen and develop the next group, the next generation of church leaders. What the residency does is it serves and strengthens the Big C Church. And we are hoping, praying, that most of our residents, they're not going to stay with us long term. We're going to send them locally, nationally, globally. So that's about our residents. You saw that video Uh, Let me say one other thing real quickly is about our weekender. So if you want to have a new beginning, you also have to have new commitments, right? You have to have new connections. Um, So your life will only be as deep as the commitments and the connections that you make. So if you're like, I want to get connected to a group of Christians, a group of people, a, a local church... Uh, in 2022. Let me encourage you to come to our weekend or January 21st and 22nd. We've already got like close to probably 40 people signed up for it. And uh, it's the number one way and the only way to get into the inroad and on-ramp of discipleship in the life of our church. So I want to take a moment, pray for us wherever you are, that we would all have the strength. Uh, The New Year's a great time to repent. It's a great time to recommit. It's a great time to reconcile relationships It's a great time to stop doing things and start doing things, to have those necessary endings so we can have new beginnings. Let me pray for us and then we're gonna look at Matthew 16 together. Let's pray. Lord, I don't know where each person is in this room, but I I just pray we just take a moment at the beginning to go, what needs to stop in our lives? The last two years have been really difficult. Maybe during and in the middle of COVID, we've picked up some bad habits or some sinful patterns, or some wrong relationships? Would you give us, by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would you give us the ability to say no to to the good so we can say yes to the best? Would you help us to stop doing the the sinful wrong things so we can repent and turn and start doing the right things? May we look into 2022 and, and we look into the future and it's as bright as the promises of God. Let us continue, even though it's been a hard last two years, to be incredibly hopeful because of who Christ is. We ask this in his name, amen. All right, well, type two, turn to Matthew 16. This is a unique Sunday. Basically, we did this last year, and I thought, let's just try to do it again, which is a Vision Sunday. We're gonna look at a passage of scripture, and we're gonna talk about vision. Vision's super important. Uh, Vision is a picture. Here's a definition of vision. Some of you like definitions. You can memorize this. It's a picture of something in the future, that produces passion in the present. So there's lots of P's in that definition so you can memorize it it easily. Okay, it's a picture of something in the future. Your kids walking with God. You and your wife actually liking and loving each other after 20 years of marriage. You being in good shape or better shape than you are. Your kids wanting to have a relationship with you when they're an adult. Your kids coming to faith in Christ and you getting to baptize them. Whatever it is, you excelling in your career, listen, you need vision, you need it. What vision does is it brings the emotions of tomorrow into the present, into today. What would it feel like to lead your friend to Christ? What would it feel like to have that conversation? What would it feel like to have her come with with, uh, with you to church? What would it feel like to have the opportunity to baptize her? When you begin to think about that and pray about that, what vision does is it brings the emotions of tomorrow into today. Now, here's the problem, because we're going to look at Jesus's vision for the church. By the way, (laughs) the conviction of this message and the conviction of Scripture is that you should get the vision for, for your life from Jesus's vision for his church. Let me say that again. This is the whole message, that you should get the vision for your life from Jesus, his larger vision that he has for the church. So you can't just think up vision out of nowhere, right? We, we, here's the other problem with vision. Vision leaks. You know this. Like how, has anyone else ever watched a Netflix documentary on eating healthy and had vision for like two days? Yes, right? I saw this one on like juicing. I was like, that's it. I'm juicing. I went and I bought a juicer. This was years ago. I had to go to Bed Bath & Beyond. I mean, I did the whole thing. And like after like three days, I'm like, I don't want to do this. I'm hungry all the time, you know? It's like, but I had vision. Every one of your gym card memberships is a picture that vision leaks. Vision's like your car keys. You keep losing them. And here's why why vision's hard. Because vision, I've told you this already, vision's about the future. But your life is about right now. Your life is about the news cycle and busyness and deadlines And that which is often urgent, but not necessarily important. And it fills up your whole life. And then you know what else is tough on, you know, vision? Success, because you get distracted. You know what else is really hard on vision? Failure, because you get discouraged. You know what else is really hard on vision? Complexity. It's like, well, now I've got kids, and now we have a house, and now we have two jobs. And we used to have a vision in college of walking with Christ, but it's just gotten so complicated. And so why are we, I mean, this is unique. We only get 52 weekends a year. Why would we take a whole weekend and talk about vision? It's, well, because the Bible says without vision, the people perish. I heard one pastor say, and without vision, people go to a different parish. Okay? <laughs> True story. And, and here's why that is, is because if, without vision, this is good to know too, you'll get anxious. If you're, if you're in a church where there's no vision, you'll get anxious, you'll get nervous, you'll get bored. If you're in a company or an organization with no vision, you'll get anxious, you'll get bored. If you're in a family with no vision, you'll get anxious, you'll get bored, you'll start having your own vision, you'll start doing your own things, you won't be connected to anything bigger. Churches get mission drift all the time, and here's what happens. If a church doesn't know what is Jesus' vision that we should attach our vision to, what happens is churches get mission drift, and then guess what? They just do what everybody tells them to do, the leadership does. They They don't know how to say the word no. No is a word that comes from conviction. No is a word that comes from vision. And so the wealthiest person decides things in a church, or the loudest person decides things in a church, or the neediest group of people start deciding things in a church. And so what we're doing today is we're going to go to Jesus's view, Jesus's view of the church, and Jesus's vision for his church. And we're going to try to always answer three questions with vision. So a lot of this is really practical, and I want to help you. Some of these things I think are going to be helpful with your family. They're going to be helpful with your business when it comes to vision. They're going to be helpful in your marriage. With vision, you always have to ask the question, why? What are we doing? Why? You have to start with why. And here's the why. What problem are we solving? What problem is the church solving? Well, how about spiritual lostness? How about people being without hope and without God in this world? I think that's a big problem. How about people headed to hell and not knowing it? Well, that's a big why. That's a big why the church exists. And then where are we headed? So there's three questions that you have to answer with vision. Why? Why are we, what's the problem we're something? Where? Where are we headed? Jesus today is gonna to say we're headed everywhere and we're headed especially into the darkest areas of culture with the light of the gospel. We are not retreating. Just saying, the church is not, does not have the position of monastery. We have the position of missionary. That's, that's the demeanor of the church. And then here's the third thing. And this is good. Anytime you wanna understand vision, you wanna pass on vision, why are we doing this? Where are we going? And then here's the important thing. What's my role? So what dad wants to do is say, hey, hey, family, this is where we're going. And this is why we're going. And Johnny and Susie, this is how you're gonna play a huge part in this. And everybody knows, I know why we're doing what we're doing. I know where we're going. I know what seat on the bus I sit in. And so Jesus today in Matthew 16 is going to give us his vision for the church. It's actually the first place where the word church ever shows up in the New Testament. It's in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Look with me there. Here's what it says. I'm going to read the whole passage to begin with. Matthew 16, 13 through 18 says this. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, we'll talk about that, why he went there. He asked his disciples, these are his 12 closest friends. They followed him for three years He asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, now two things to notice there. One, Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. That's his favorite designation for himself. He loves to call himself that. Secondly, look what Jesus does. And by the way, this is what we should all do. He engages people he knows in spiritual conversations by asking questions about what they think about Jesus. Jesus. That's it. We try, we we make evangelism, we make sharing our faith, we make being missional way too difficult. Here's what I want to do. I would like to build relationships, and in the relationships that I have, I'd like to honestly, it's not offensive to say, hey, what do you think about Jesus? What what are your thoughts on Jesus? So he does that. Now look here. Verse 14. And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, he was just, we'll talk about him, he's a guy in the New Testament. And others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So like, I don't know, you're somewhere important from like the New Testament or the Old Testament, basically. Verse 15, he said to them, ha ha, hold on, you can't, you can't just listen to what everyone else says, but who do you, literally you all, he's speaking. To, he's southern, okay, he's speaking, to, speaking to, to the whole 12 of them, but who do you all say that I am? And then Simon Peter replied, right? Simon Peter always speaks first, and he always speaks for all of the disciples, And and Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, here it is. This is what we'll focus on today. This is Jesus's vision. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So let's talk about this. So let's look verse by verse. That's what we do here. Verse 13, Jesus takes his 12 best friends to Caesarea Philippi to explain the church. Now, I want you to realize, if you're reading this as a young Jewish boy or a young Jewish girl or an old Jewish boy or an old Jewish girl, you're like, why Caesarea Philippi? If you're gonna announce your church, Jesus, why don't you do it in a synagogue? Why don't you do it in a religious context? Why don't you do it at a Christian bookstore? Why don't you do it at youth group? Why don't don't you do it in Jerusalem, the holy city? Help me understand why you'd go to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi, I'm serious. It was the Las Vegas of those days. It was the San Francisco of those days. If it was in North Carolina, it would be the Asheville. (laughs) You know exactly what I'm talking about. In fact, fact, the, the God that they worshiped there was Pan. If you don't know what Pan means, Pan means everything. And by the way, this is good to know. When you stop worshiping Jesus, when you stop worshiping the one true and living God, you don't start worshiping nothing. That's what people think. I don't worship anything. That's what the average American says. No, no. no. The problem is you worship everything. You begin to exchange worshiping the Creator for worshiping everything in creation. That's what happens. It was a very sec- I can't even get into. It It's a very sexually immoral place. So Jesus comes here's why he does that. Why does he do it? Because he's going to go to the darkest place that these 12 guys could think of. There was no more sinful, broken, rebellious. Honestly, for a couple good Orthodox Jewish boys, you don't go to Caesarea Philippi. Jesus is going to say, I'm going to build my church in here. Before I even tell you what the church is, and I'm going to tell you what it is in a minute. Before I even tell you that, I want you to know that I'm building my church in the darkest and the hardest places. That's what I'm doing. I had an opportunity about a month or so ago. Found myself in a room in Dallas, Texas, with a network of guys. That um, they, this network, all they do, is plant pastors in major global or major North or major American cities um, that are super secular and have like less than something like less than like five percent population of that's Christian. So they wouldn't even look at like a Charlotte. They would too reached. And I was in a room with guys from Manhattan, and Boston, and San Francisco, and all of these areas. And I was hearing stories in Berkeley, California, and I was hearing stories of the gospel going forward. Washington D.C. I mean, areas where we we'd say this is incredibly dark. Let's listen. We don't want to. What Christians do is we don't complain about the darkness. You don't walk into a room and start complaining about the darkness. You say this room needs some light. Let's find the switch. And so what he's going to say from the very beginning is, I'm going to build my church. He says, and it's going to be in the hardest. Why did we go to Mumbai, India? I've told you this before, but Mumbai, India, the reason that we went to Mumbai, India, if you don't know this, we have a strategic partnership there, is when we talked to people, we had three or four people say, if you want to go to the hardest place on earth with the most spiritual, the, the largest concentration of spiritual lostness on earth is in Mumbai, India. In fact, People pray that the movement of the church that's happened in China and that is happening in Africa, people pray that it would, something like that would start to happen in India. And so we said, okay, well, it's a little overwhelming and it's really far away. And if you have ever been there, and I've been there one time, it overwhelms all five of your senses the whole time you were there. We said that we're going to go there because it's, we want to go to the hardest and the darkest places. Okay, well, so Jesus says, I'm going to go there. And what I'm going to do, look what he says. I'm going to, verse 18, I'm going to build my church. It's like, well, okay, well, what's a church? Now, don't answer this out loud, but most Americans, if you said to the average American, what's the church? Here's what they would say. (sighs) It's a building with stained glass windows. It usually has bells and smells. Uh, It has pews, and normally a guy's in there wearing a long robe, and everybody looks sad. That's what church is. But could you imagine that Jesus would take his 12 disciples, and he would take them to Caesarea Philippi, and he goes, hey, guys, listen, I want you to know this. I'm going to build my building with stained glass windows. I mean, it's ridiculous. He's not saying that. Well, here's what what you would be tempted to think. Here's what I'm tempted to think. Here's what the average American or average American Christian thinks. The church is an event. Maybe it's a really good, maybe there's good Bible teaching at this event. Maybe there's good songs we sing at this event. Maybe we take communion at this event. Maybe we hear a vision sermon at this event, but it's an event. Could you imagine Jesus having his 12 disciples? Hey, guys, listen, this is amazing. you got to hear this. I am going to build. I'm going to give my life for this. I'm going to shed my blood for this. I'm building my weekly event. It's so ridiculous. So A lot of Americans think, oh, here's what it means. It's a nonprofit that does lots of good deeds where people can get a tax deduction for their giving. I mean, could you, again, could you imagine Jesus, hey guys, listen, I'm going to be misunderstood, falsely accused, I'm going to die on the cross, a a criminal's death, but I will build my nonprofit. (laughs) No. Others think it's a social club. Now, this is less common, but in the South, especially in the 1900s, in the South, early to mid-1900s, massive social club, massive status symbol. There was a season in America where you could not get a mortgage if you did not show your Jewish synagogue membership or your Christian, Protestant, or Catholic church membership. It was a status symbol. Now today, it's the opposite. When Jesus says, I'm building my church, here's the word he uses. I don't, I don't talk about, I don't know the original languages real well, okay? And I don't talk about them a lot, but I'm going to with this one word. It's the word ekklesia. That's what the word, so if you want to know, it might be one of the maybe top 10 Greek words in the original uh, original language of the New Testament to know. So here's what it means. Ek, it's the Greek word for out. Lacia, gathering. Literally, what the, what a church is, is it's a called out gathering of people. That's what it is. In other words, here's a good way to think about it. The church is not a place you go, it's a people you join. The church is not a place you go. It's it's actually a people you join. And I'll explain this. See, first of all, what are we called out of? Well, we're called out of sin. We're called out of rebellion. We're called out of ignorance. We're called out of isolation. We're called out of addiction. We're called out of enslavement to sin. Now, we understand this. Humans love to gather. So, So remember, the church is a called out gathering. What we learned in COVID, in 2020 especially, is how much we all love to gather. Because immediately everything was shut down. It was like, it was so sad. I mean, many of us knew people. And as soon as like, we all kind of realized this is going to be longer, like right around the beginning of April, it's like, everyone's just like, okay, no sports. My kids aren't playing sports this year. It's like no gatherings for that. Okay, no graduations. We're not gathering for that anymore. We're, se- you know, no weddings where people are eloping or we're doing really small. No, nope, nope, there's no weddings to celebrate. celebrating. We're not gathering. We used to gather for those. Funerals for a season. We're not, we're not gathering for that musicians. We love to gather around the singers. Broadway shows, sporting events, everything closed down. And you realize, wow, this is a huge part of our lives because God created us to gather. Literally what the church is, it's the people who gather on purpose. It's, It's a people who gather with a goal. Now, let me explain this. What do we gather around? So we're a called out people who gather. And I'm, I'm going to give you, I mean, there's really, you could read books. There's really, 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 really long definitions of what a church is. I'm giving you a very short definition. A church is a called out people who gather. Gather around what? Gather around God's word. That's in a nutshell what the church is. And, and that ch- and gathering around the word leads to worship. It leads to teaching. It leads to having communion. It leads to going out on mission. But this is so such an old idea. So if you know your Bible at all, The second book of the Bible, Exodus, what happens? Moses, who's a type of Christ, he points us to Christ, he leads a people out of slavery, which represents sin. As soon as they get there, go read it, as soon as they get into the wilderness and out of slavery, what is the first thing Moses does? He gathers all the people and gives them God's word. This is what God's people have been doing for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Which is why online only church isn't church. It, it isn't. Now it's, it's a, again, I'm more convinced, I created this language when I thought through this language when, when we first went into it, but I'm more convinced than ever. Online only church is a supplement. If you're sick, if you're traveling, if you're legitimately unable for a weekend to get here, it's a great supplement. But it's it's way secondary and it's not a substitute. What, what you can do online is you can consume content, but you can't actually be the church together. And so we, we see this. So he's he's building his gathering. Now I want you to see what it's built on. It's built on the person of Jesus Christ Himself. So if you're gonna have a vision for your life and a vision for your church, you first have to have the right vision. Of who Jesus is. Look look at me at verse 13. Let's go back through this. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, that was the Las Vegas of the day, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some said John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ. The Son of the Living God, so he's gonna he's gonna say, listen, if you're gonna have a vision for your life, if you're gonna understand the church, you have to understand me first. And so he's asking, who do people say that I am? It's not that Jesus is like some insecure, like teenager who's like, hey, what is everybody saying about me? You know, <laughs> he he knows who he is. In fact, you can't read the teachings of Jesus and see that and, and not come to the conclusion that there is of all actually of all religious teachers ever. He is the most self-centered, self-directed, self-focused in his teaching. Buddha, Confucius, uh, Muhammad, they pointed away from themselves to something else. Jesus points to himself, believe in me, worship me. So so Jesus is completely self-aware, confident in who he is, knows who he is. He wants to see what what do they think. Now they say a couple things. They say, well, John the Baptist, and that would be a compliment to everybody except for Jesus. Because John the Baptist is Jesus says in another place he's literally the best guy that's ever lived, Jesus said that. So it'd be like someone comparing you to like maybe like Billy Graham or something You're like, well thanks, <laughs> no no I'm not him but thanks you know. Um, but but it, it, here, here and then they say Elijah and the prophets. Here's what they're saying that Jesus and this is it's interesting, you know history repeats itself. Um, this is exactly what people say today. Jesus is good a good person but not God. That's what they're saying. That he's likable, but not Lord. That he's a sweet guy, but not a savior, right? This is exactly what Americans think. Here's what the average American thinks about Jesus, I think. He's a nice Galilean peasant who, I'm not exactly sure how, but he had a lot of really good moral and spiritual insights. And for the most part, he's a great example of how to live our lives. That would be that would that is not. By the way, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible. We believe in big God theology, big Jesus theology. The Jesus of the Bible is risen, reigning, returning. He, I mean, he Jesus is the way we say it here is he's he's bigger than your suffering. He's better than your sin. And that and by the way, this is good to know that um, sin is what you do when you have a small view of Jesus. That's what you. But when you engage in sin, it's, it's coming out of a, a small view of who Jesus is and what he's about. We all need a bigger view of who Christ is. And so he says, okay, look, the church is going to be built on me. But then he's going to say, also, the church is going to be built by me. But I want you to see this. Look, look at verse 17. And Jesus responded. So finally, Peter basically you know, gives him feedback and, and says, um, you know, let me read it actually in verse 17. Uh, 16, Simon says, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And look at what he says in verse 17, what Jesus says after Peter rightly knows who Jesus is. Verse 17, Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, you figured it out. Nope, he didn't say that. (laughs) You're smarter than all of your non-Christian friends. No, he doesn't say that. You are, have more spiritual sensitivity and insight than people who don't know Christ. He didn't say that. Look what he says. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. In other words, the only way that we can know who Jesus Christ is and see him for who he really is is God opens up our eyes to do it. That, that's, that leads us, if you believe that, it doesn't lead to pride, it leads to great humility. It leads to not being mad or angry or angry at lost people, you go, they can't see. They don't understand, their eyes haven't been opened. I don't wanna be angry at them, I don't wanna be afraid of them, I don't wanna be apathetic toward them. I wanna be brokenhearted and care and be compassionate toward them. So Jesus says, listen, the church is built on me. (laughs) The church is all about Jesus. The church is built on me, now he's gonna say the church belongs to me and is built by me. Look, Look at this, it's verse 18, it's very simple. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is simple, but it needs to be said, the church belongs to Jesus Christ. The church does not belong to any pastor. The church does not belong to any elders. The church does not belong to any committees. The church does not belong to any deacons. The church does not belong to any certain denomination. The church does not belong to wealthy people. The church does not belong to poor people. The church ultimately belongs to Jesus. Only he shed his blood, gave his life, and died for the church. The church belongs to Christ. And then he says, I will build my church. Here's what that means. We say this a lot here, but we are humbled, genuinely humbled, uh, at what's happened here in the first five years. We've seen... Jesus do more seriously in five years than most churches get to see in 50 years and I think just we need to continue to remember this that anything that happens in your family or in our church that's of health or spiritual growth it's Jesus building the church if your kid comes to faith in Christ Jesus is building his church if marriages are restored Jesus is building his church if you repent of that sin and get on mission Jesus is building his church if people step forward and get baptized Jesus is building his church If God raises up more men and women to be leaders in the church and lead community groups and do other things like that, it's like, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is building his church. This is what he's doing. But, so you may ask this question. If you're you're following along, you go, okay, wait a second, hold on. The church is built on Jesus. That's a great vision, okay? He's the center of it. And then the church is, it belongs to Jesus. Okay, I get that. And and the church is even built by Jesus. Uh, That's a lot. Okay, I get it. But you may ask, then what role do we play? And here's here's the answer. The church is built through sinful, broken people like you and me. And I'll show you this. I want you to see this. Look at it again one more time. We're going to read, and it's a short passage. We're going to read through it because I want you to see this. Um, So, Peter in verse 16 says, or verse 15, uh, Jesus says to Peter, um, He said to him, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, here it is, and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So the question is, what is that rock that Jesus is going to be building on? Now, one interpretation is there's the Catholics, they say that rock is actually Peter, Okay, They say Peter is the first pope. They teach apostolic succession. that This is the number one verse that Catholics go to to say Peter is the first pope. And to that, we say, nope. Nope, <laughs> nope Peter is not the first pope. Here's how we, here's how we know that. If you, if you look five verses later, Jesus is going to call Peter Satan. <laughs> Get behind me, Satan. Now listen, Peter actually is a great example. Peter is a great example of just a sinful person, okay, of a broken person. Later we'll see of a restored person. Now the second thing people say is, okay, so some people, one extreme is the rock is Peter and that's the Catholic and you know lots of popes and all that stuff. Um, And then the other extreme, not extreme, but the other side is, okay, it's the profession. Like what Jesus is going to build his church on is on that profession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's it. That's that's what he builds his church on. Well, I think the answer is a mingling. I think what it is is I think Peter represents all of us. Right, that's why Peter's different than Paul. When I think about the apostle Paul, I think of like someone standing at the top of a building with a cape on, saying so, to live as Christ and to die as gain. You know, he's well educated. He's from the best families. Peter is a blue-collar fisherman, who often says the wrong thing at the wrong time, who makes promises and commitments he can't keep, who 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 betrays Jesus when Jesus needs him most and is end up needing to be restored. He, he represents all of us. So what the rock is, is it's sinful people who profess Christ. That's a, It's it's sinners, like you and me, who are repenting, trusting in Christ, who are publicly professing Christ. I want you to understand this. Christianity is confessional. So we are a, it's weird that you have to say these things, but just where we are in our culture and where churches are, We are what's called, and this is what every true church has been, we are a confessional church. What does that mean? We actually believe things. It's not common to meet a church and they don't believe anything, or they believe everything, which is the same as not believing anything. It's like, no, we believe hell is real and it lasts forever. We believe in heaven. We believe this life has many options, eternity has two. We, we, We believe that God wrote a book. And it's total, we can trust it for its total truthfulness. We believe Jesus Christ is the unique son of God and that conscious saving faith is necessary, right? We believe God created the world out of nothing. We we believe the word of God. It's just, the first time I heard this is a friend of mine said to me, I had not heard that phrase before, confessional. I had a friend, he said, oh, I've got a friend. He's a confessional Methodist. I thought, what's a confessional Methodist? He goes, a Methodist who actually believes what Methodists believe. Oh, It's unique. That's what a confessional Baptist is. That's what a confessional Presbyterian is. It's like, I actually believe this. Christianity starts, what is baptism? It's the first confession. That's what it is. Hey, stand or sit or whatever in the water in front of everybody. Tell them that you're following Christ. Tell them what he's done. Proclaim that Christ is Lord. Great, because now you're going to do that the rest of your life. This reminds us that Christianity, though very personal, is never private. So the way that the church is built is it's built as broken sinners like you and me who trust Christ, publicly profess him to others. Which is why the church continues to move forward. Look at verse 18 one more time. Uh, or, or, or Sorry, verse 19 first. It says this. Um, I will give you the keys. This is what Jesus says. I will give you the keys. This is right after he talks about building the church. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. What do keys do? They open doors. I will give you the kingdom of uh, keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now this is huh, this is a much debated verse, and it, you can understand why it's a little confusing, right? That, that's he's using Jewish rabbinical language, basically to super simplify it. Binding and loosing were rabbinical terms to basically say to talk about the blessings and the cursings of God, or the blessings and the judgments of God. So here's what he's saying: that what what the church has, we have what's called a derivative authority. So so Kyle, in and of himself, has no authority. We have a derivative authority. We have the we have an authority that is derived from the word of God, and we have the authority to say what God has said. That's that's it. So this means that you have the authority. And you say it humbly, but you have the authority to say to somebody, if you do not repent of that sin, you will die in it. You also have the authority based on the word of God to say whoever would repent and trust in Jesus Christ can be born again. He's saying this is the amazing thing that we go out and we profess Christ and we have the keys of the kingdom. We have the ability to tell other people, we, we can't save anybody. We have the ability to tell other people how they can go to heaven, how they can have a relationship with God. That's what he's saying. And he's saying, guys, he said, this is a, I want you to see this last thing if you go back to verse 18 now. He, he's, he I want you to see, and he's saying that the, the stance of the church, so so it's built by Jesus, it's built on Jesus, it belongs to Jesus, it's built through sinful people, all of that's true, and it it must move forward. That's what it does. I mean, look, look at verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Here it is. It's a forward force because, look what it says, and the gates of hell, we're coming toward that, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What the church does is it moves forward. Here's what I mean by that. We are not, as a church, playing defense. We are not, I said this earlier, we're not a monastery, we're missionaries. We are not on the wrong side of history, we are on the right side of eternity. We are not afraid of the world. We're not angry at the world. We're not hiding from the world. We're not trying to create a subculture we are moving into the darkest places, the Caesarea Philippi's of the world. And in our own brokenness, and our own sinfulness, we are proclaiming Christ with the keys of the kingdom, telling people how they can have eternal life in a relationship with the living God. Now, here's the thing, guys. This is not something new. It's just our turn. This is something the church, I want you to understand this. We are so, part of the whole idea of what, remember how I said there's three parts of vision. There's why are we doing this? What's the problem? There's where are we going? The third one is what's my role? The problem is we live in an America where people have no understanding of their role connected to anything larger than themselves. They're disconnected from their families, they're disconnected from their nation, they're disconnected from a church, they're disconnected from a biblical narrative. They don't understand how they're a part of something much bigger. We understand here. We at two cities. We want to be Bible saturated, historically rooted, and globally informed. We want to be all of those. And I want to tell you. I want to read this to you. This is how the church has moved forward over the last two thousand years. It started in 42 A.D. Right after, not too long after Jesus Christ rose from the dead. We have the first missionary, Mark, who wrote the gospel of Mark. He goes to Egypt. Then in 49, Paul goes on his first missionary trip. He leaves. He goes and leads people to Christ in Turkey. In 51, Paul goes to Greece. In 52, doubting Thomas, who's no longer doubting, goes to India. In 52, Thomas leads people to Christ. This is all church history. He leads people to Christ in India. In 54, Paul goes to Rome on his third missionary journey. In 174, we have the first Christians reported in Austria. We're not sure how it all happened. We start having Christians reported in Austria in 174. In 350, in the year 350, 300 years after Christ rose from the dead, 57% of Rome claims Jesus Christ as Lord. In 432, St. Patrick heads to Ireland, okay? To lead the Irish to Christ. In 596, Gregory the Great sends Augustine to England, to reintroduce the gospel to them, 10,000 people are baptized in the first two years. In 635, the first Christian missionaries ever go to China. In 740, Irish monks leave their lives to head to share the gospel in Iceland. In 900, missionaries reach Norway for the first time. In 1200, which is about 300 years before the printing press, there are already Bibles translated into 22 different languages. Just think about the work that had to be done to have that happen before computers, before printing presses, before any of this. In 1490, the first Christians are ever reported in Kenya. In 1554, the first Christians are reported in Thailand. In 1671, missionaries arrive in the Carolinas of what would become the United States of America. In 1735... Thank God for Charles and John Wesley, they come to America for the First Great Awakening. In 1766, a group called the Moravians moved to Salem, North Carolina to plant their lives, plant churches, and pray for the city. In 1898, Salem Baptist Church is planted out of First Baptist Church here in Winston-Salem. In in 1945, they start a Bible college. In 1975, a young couple named Lynn and Carol Greer move here with their young son, J.D. Greer, and begin to attend Salem Baptist Church, which is where J.D. comes to faith in Christ and hears about local, national, and global missions for the first time. In 2001, ironically, 20 years ago today, J.D. Greer took over as the senior pastor of Homestead Heights, which would become the Summit Church. In 2016, the Summit, as part of their vision to plant a 1,000 churches in a generation, sends 30 people to Winston-Salem, North Carolina. That would become Two Cities Church. In 2018, Two Cities Church celebrates two years by moving into two warehouses in downtown. In 2021, God opens up in the midst of COVID 11 acres in downtown and raises millions of dollars in a few months for the church to have a permanent, indefinite gospel preaching location in downtown Winston-Salem. This is, this is just what God is doing, and now it's our turn. And so what does this mean for us? What are we asking? Because it's, it's easy. The, the main... Struggle, I think that we have in churches like ours, where there's lots of things happening. The church can feel a a person in our church can feel like they are missional, like they are helping to build the church just because they're a part of a church that's missional. So, what is the ask? I want to I want to encourage you and ask you to consider praying about doing something in 2022. Here's what, and I'm going to try to lead the way in this. We're asking every person who calls Two Cities Church home in 2022 to be committed to taking personal risks to bring Christ to every relationship. That's it. Just We're not asking you to make a lot of new relationships. You can do that. We're not asking you to go witnessing to random people. You can do that. Christians have done that. We're saying, what would it look like for you in all of your existing relationships to say, I am going to, in 2022, I'm going to take personal risks. I don't know what she'll say. I don't know what my dad would do if I asked him that question. I don't know what it would look like if we had my neighbors over and just ask some questions and engage them more deeply. I don't know. I don't know what's gonna happen if I invited someone to church. We're saying what would it look like if everybody who called Two Cities Church home said I'm going to take personal risks to bring Christ to every relationship. And I'm going to start by doing it with the people who are far from God, but are close to me. Our hope is this. We have over 80 community groups in our church. Our hope is that every community group would see somebody that that that, that community group is relationally connected to. So say a community group has, let's make it easy. A community group has 15 people in it. Each of those 15 people, we'll, we'll make the numbers real easy. They each know 10 different people. That means that that community group is connected to 150 people. Could we see one of, those, one of the relational connections? Could that person come to faith in Christ and be baptized? Could we see every community group see someone come to faith in Christ and be baptized this year? That's our hope. That's what Christ died for. See, what's interesting is if you drop down to verse 21, I want to show you this as we close. In verse 21, right after Jesus teaches about the church, it says something very interesting. It says this, from that time. By the way, that phrase is used four times in the Gospel of Matthew, always to mark a major transition in the Gospel. From that time, what what time? From the time Jesus said, I'm going to build my church, what did he do? He began to show his disciples that he needs to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Here's what happens. Before Jesus can build the church, he needs to go and buy the church with his own blood. Jesus built the church, but before before he's building the church, he bought the church. What Jesus does is he lives a sinless life, a perfect life for 33 years. He goes to the cross of Christ, to the cross. He dies in our place for our sins. He rises from the dead and says, I've done all of the heavy lifting. Jesus has done all of the heavy lifting. (laughs) The debt has been paid. Jesus has been risen. The spirit has been poured out. We have 2,000 years of church history. It's now our turn. My question is, will you take personal risks this year, starting this month, to bring Christ to every relationship? We believe that's how we connect our lives to the greater, and the vision that God has for our lives to the greater vision that he has for the church. I think we're gonna see many baptisms. I think we're gonna hear many stories because of your faithfulness to step out and take personal risks to bring Christ to every relationship. Let's pray. Lord, we're about to sing a song right now and we just want to make it a prayer to you. It's a new song. It's just a song about asking you to build the church. Lord, that's our prayer. That's a prayer that you're going to answer. You've promised to build it, so we're just asking you to build it. We're asking you to build the Big C Church, or we're asking for the church to thrive and grow all over our city, for you to strengthen local churches. In our city, in North Carolina, in our nation, in the world, Lord, every city needs more healthy, strong, vibrant local churches. Build your church, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.